Welcome to the Fuck the Sigma podcast, Charles. Thank you for inviting me, Aisha. You've been trying to get me here for a while, right? I have. And I'm excited for this one. Okay. Um, Charles, I feel like, has been a very good and impactful person in my recovery. I met you within my first like 45 days of being lucid and conscious. <laughs> and in denial. <laughs> and denial. Like, I personally didn't want to admit that I was somebody who struggled with addiction, had addiction or alcoholism. And I also kind of wanted to ask you if, for people that jump into recovery, for those that are ready to like, you know, get sober, get clean and sober, it's very people like kind of push it on them. It's very important for them to identify as an addict and alcoholic. Why do you think that is? Because you can point things out in a person all day long, but if they don't see, own and accept it, it nothing will change. You know what I mean? Um, that's one of the dangerous things about, one of the most severe things about this disease is it, once the, once the brain is taken over and you're out of touch with reality, you're buying into lies, but you don't know you're buying into the lie. So you just don't know that you don't know. You know what I mean? That's what makes this disease so severe. Self cannot reveal self to self, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and the thing is, we talk about that, 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 that mental twist, that, that, that alteration of the truth that we continue to buy the lie, even though we've had experiences where it doesn't work. There's just an overriding of anything rational in my mind. You know what I mean? All irrational things can be made rational in my mind. And that's what I act on. But they don't even know that's where they are. You know what I mean? So I think it's important to be patient with a newcomer and to understand your disease so that you can understand their disease. Because if you don't understand you well and how it manifests in you, how in the hell can you help somebody else see how it manifests in them? Of course, but when we first come in, we're definitely not thinking about helping anybody else. <laughs> well, no, when you first come in, you're not, no. But I, my experience has been, when I first got here, I couldn't see how hopeless I really was. But there was people who had patience and understanding and some compassion and took time with me to help me see what I couldn't see. Somewhere along the line, I became very passionate for this process, and I began to learn and grow. And I use everything I've learned to grow and all of the people that have helped me grow to help the person that's sitting in front of me. Do you understand? And I also think what's important is I need to allow the student to teach me how to teach them. Mm -hmm. I need to really pay attention to what they're saying. And, and sometimes what they'll do is they'll talk long enough till where they eventually hear the insanity <laughs> of what they're saying. Yeah. But it doesn't happen in my time. Yeah, it happens on their time. Of right. Course. And you referred to it as a disease of addiction i remember that was also really hard for me to wrap my head around because like how the fuck do i have a disease i was in denial of having a disease so what's what is that if i'm not mistaken in group one day i said to you do you identify with cancer and diabetes being chronic progressive and fatal mm -hmm. those are the things that makes it a disease the disease of chemical addiction is chronic progressive and fatal that's why it's a disease I actually think it just causes confusion because we think it's like something we can catch. Well, we're on fuck the stigma. Yeah. Think about the stigma that comes with, I have a disease. Think Facts. about the stigma that comes with, oh, I smoke too much crack or I drink alcoholic or, you know what I mean? I, I think a lot of that has a lot to do with the resistance of accepting the severity of what we suffer from as well.
Of course. There's probably many variables, actually, but... Yeah, 100%. Well, I mean, you know, the stigma with addiction prevents a lot of people from seeking help. Yeah. And of course, yeah, what you said, admitting that they even have right. a problem. Right. But and yeah. just think about this. Something is controlling me, but I can't see it. I believe I am in control. Of course, because we feel like I'm putting the pill in my mouth. Right. I'm choosing when to do this. Right. I choose when I want to take a drink. So how come we can't control it? Because <laughs> we can't control it because the brain has been hardwired, right? So I'm not exactly sure about the, 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 the neuroscience. However, neurotransmitters are things that carry messages to the brain. Dopamine, dopamine endorphins, and pleasure center thing, right? So after doing drugs for so long, the neurotransmitters or the feel-good chemicals of the brain stop doing their job. So now the brain is dependent on the substance to do what the feel-good chemicals do, right? So now the brain has been hijacked, it's rewired, right? So if my brain is my commander-in-chief, whatever it says makes sense to me, right? So I just got out of jail for my fifth DUI. I had my girlfriend pick me up across the street at the liquor store. As I walk to the car, I ask her to slide over to the passenger side. As I walk in the store, I already forgot why I came out of jail. That's the power of this disease. It doesn't allow you to remember the pain and suffering and humiliation from five minutes ago, almost. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that powerful. And it's just not easy for someone to believe and accept that I am not in control. I didn't choose to go to the liquor store. Nobody wants to admit they don't have control. It's, but it's, it's, yeah, they don't want to admit it, but it's not easy to see because they're using their logic, which is warped, to make sense. So they're trying to make sense out of nonsense. Mm -hmm. Then they get frustrated and say, F it, you know, let me go back to the dope, man. What do you think the overall stigma is with addiction and alcoholism? I think the overall stigma is and I think there is a stigma because people don't understand addiction. You know what I mean? So with this comes a lot of fierce resentment and misunderstanding. People who have it don't understand it. How can people who don't have it understand it? Because to them, it looks like we choose this, but we don't have a choice. And it's not easy for someone that doesn't have the experience of the obsession, the allergy, to identify with we're not making a choice. We're being controlled by something. You just can't see it. There's a huge misunderstanding with it. Absolutely. And you mentioned the obsession and the allergy. What is what is that? Well, an obsession is like an overriding thought that overrides rational thinking, mm -hmm. right? So if I just came out of jail for my fifth DUI, is it rational to go in the liquor store? No. And drive again? Right. <laughs> but that's what happens over and over and over and over again unless we talk about a psychic change appears. Until that happens, the same mind will get the same results. So the mind has to change. And it's been said for millions of years, you can't think your way into better acting. You can only act your way into better thinking. And if I knew how to act when I got here, I wouldn't have needed the process of recovery. Nor did I need a guide. So everyone who struggles with addiction has this mental obsession. I believe so. If you have crossed the line into addiction, you are beyond human aid. And that's not easy to accept. Because some of us growing up are always hearing, you should be able to figure it out. You should know better. Right. You know what I mean? Then we, those lies get so deeply ingrained into us, when we're an adult, we still think we should be able to handle it. 
hundred percent. I feel that way now. Like I should be able to handle whatever comes my way. Right. Um, I mean, now it's, now it's aside from the problem of like active alcoholism, but now it's just like real life things like, Oh, I'm an adult. I should be able to do this, figure this out, not ask for help. Right. Right. You know, I've come to believe and accept that before I ever took a drink, hit fix a pill, I was already spiritually sick. I just didn't know it. The abnormal had become normal to me. You know what I mean? I, I think a good way of looking at spirituality is a healthy relationship with self, others, and the world, and of course, a higher power, right? Okay. So if I have a healthy relationship with self, I think well of me versus I ain't good enough, right? Or if I make a mistake, what the fuck's wrong with me? You know what I mean? That doesn't happen. If I have a healthy relationship and have accepted self, my flaws, my qualities, all of that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that didn't exist when I was growing up. Yeah, and it's really crucial for people in recovery to find a higher power. And why do you think that is? And why do you, also do you think it's so hard for people to connect with a higher power in recovery? Well, one of my things was when I was growing up, I had this conception of a higher power. We called God and Jesus and all of that. Mm-hmm. But it was other, pe- other people's ideas of what it was and what was going to happen to me if I didn't do certain things or if I, uh, if I didn't. If I didn't attend church regularly, if I didn't, if I didn't think, if I thought bad, something was wrong with me, right? So all of those beliefs is what's made me struggle when I first got here. And the thing about recovery, the twelve-step process, it's not a religious program. So when I heard God, I was ready to go because I thought religion. And um, but but because of the um, what I really love is if I can talk about step three. Yes. What I really love is step three said came to believe in, I mean, made a decision to turn our lives, willing lives over to a care of God as we understand him, right? So now I had the freedom to choose something that worked and made sense for me, right? And um, now, now I don't have to live by somebody else's imprinted information into me about me and my relationship with a God because that would keep me stuck. It was like these certain things of, about religion that really bugged you with like, oh, if you do this, that's not good, you're sinning, for example. Um, that's kind of my thing as well with it. Like personally, like in recovery, I started going to church, like this kind of really cool Christian church. I find it like I hear really good things, great messages. And I even hang out with a bunch of Christian people. Like I love them to death, you know what I mean? No hate to Christianity whatsoever. I just don't feel like I could, you know, call myself a Christian or really adopt to their to their God or, or Jesus, for example, because I can't get down with all these rules. It feels like rules mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of like, oh, you're having sex with a woman, you're going to hell. Right. Like, I really don't think, I don't believe to my core that that's what's going to happen to me. Right. So that's why it's hard for me to adopt that belief. And that's the really cool thing about recovery and the 12-step process. It's almost crucial that you need to find a connection with a higher power, but it doesn't have to be a religious one. You know, um, I don't know whether it was a, my issue was what I understood about God, I didn't want nothing to do with because I didn't think God wanted nothing to do with me based on what was told to me about God, Mm. right? Something else you said that caught my attention was most of us are living the life to please somebody else. Yeah. When we get to the process of recovery, we get the privilege to learn to be our authentic self which has always been enough, which has always mattered, right? But we, we still have that deeply ingrained belief that we're not enough and we don't matter. 
So it takes a while for that to change. And the only way I believe that changes for me is to change my actions long enough. Now, people talk about how this perfect relationship with God. I don't know about a perfect relationship with God. I've never had an imperfect relationship with God. I'm just perfectly imperfect. You know what I mean? So when, when people say that, I say, I don't understand God. But is it my job to understand God? Or is it my job to accept that God understands me? You know, so sometimes we put, put the wrong priorities in the wrong thing and we miss the mark because we're focusing on things that ain't our business. And I think there's three basic businesses, my business, God's business, and none of my business. So that being said, going back to we live for people, what people think of me is not my business, right? So I can't let what I think people think of me. I say that because a lot of times we can walk in a room and ain't nobody said nothing to us and we're feeling something. I've learned it ain't got nothing to do with the people. It's got everything to do with what I feel about me. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So my problem is not outside. My problem is what my thinking tells me about the outside. So I need to run my thinking by somebody else other than myself, even with 24 years sober, even with knowing the information in the process, because my, my mind can still play a trick on me. Sober. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that brings me to the other thing is that I have alcoholism, not alcoholism. But the alcohol has been removed. Yeah. So now I have to focus on the ism, which is the internal spiritual malady. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like boundaries. Boundaries don't happen automatically. And once you establish them, you got to maintain them. So I got to maintain my spiritual healthiness on a regular daily basis. I like to use this analogy. <laughs> if you take a shower on Monday, but you take, don't take one of them until Friday, you can't expect not to be funky. You got to wash that ass every day. <laughs> yeah. So you got to treat that spirit on a daily basis. So, yeah, anyway. for sure. Uh, you said a few things. I did, huh? You said quite a few things. Sorry, um, I just get off on tangents. No, I love it so much. <laughs> you think you say it's really important to, obviously, like even in sobriety, and that's also another thing that people don't get is that we still are alcoholics and have alcoholism even when we're sober. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of people can't wrap. I mean, some people just can't wrap their head around that and kind of don't get it. Mm -hmm. Of course, like the again the misunderstanding with addiction and alcoholism. And that we can always just fall right back into that. Easily. And there's not like, there's not a cure. Like we're not just going to be good and be able to drink alcohol and use drugs casually one day. Right. Um, and that was also something that was hard for me to come to terms to. And then you also talked about the importance of changing our behaviors. Like you can't change your thinking. So our thinking is like our fucking issue. Mm -hmm. The way we think about things, everything that I, that makes me uncomfortable is because of me. Mm -hmm. um, what you were saying, like... It's your responsibility. Yeah, exactly. So I don't even know how to give an example with that. Like, say you say something that wasn't even personal to me, but I'm like, dude, this guy's like a dick. Like, he's coming at me making, you know, jabs at me right now. And it's like, no, like, you're just feeling defensive on the inside. And you're just perceiving what he's saying in a certain way when he didn't, when he didn't mean it that way at all. And you say the only way to change your thinking is through your actions uh -huh. and we're used to behaving and thinking in a certain way. Give me some examples of kind of like what that process was like for you of changing your thoughts through your actions. Okay. When I was newly sober, I, I never prayed unless it was God, get me out of this one. Mm -hmm. And that was a very selfish place, selfish prayer. 
or self-serving prayer. But when I had an experience in one of the treatment facilities I was in in early recovery, somebody suggested I pray. Uh, I don't know why, but somewhere I became willing to believe. And as a result, I began to follow a direction. I started praying. Now, I didn't see it at the time, but in hindsight, I look back, I could see it. He suggested I say a prayer that he wrote down for two weeks. In that time, there was an attitudinal change in my anger. Because I had a lot of anger when I got here because I had a lot of repressed feelings. And um, as a result of that, I just haven't stopped praying. I believe prayer works. Right? And I do, I pray whether, I pray not looking for something. I pray because it's the thing to do to stay in conscious contact with my power greater than me. And then I meditate. Right? So, as a result of continuing to be involved in the fellowship and do what people suggested, get commitments, be involved, uh, go to meetings, read the book, you know what I mean? My, my, my actions begin to change. Now, one of the things that helped me a lot is, is the importance of getting involved in the fellowship. I had this saying, if you don't get involved in the fellowship, there's a chance your ass will be the only fellow on the ship, which is a lonely place to be. It, you start isolating. It's a disease of isolation, right? So I think for me, because of the, the, the teachers that I had and the examples that I had, following directions wasn't uh, a hard thing because all my life I never felt a part of anything. I never felt accepted. I never felt that I had a purpose. Not realizing it back then, I was gradually beginning to feel these things and it attracted me more to do more. I haven't turned back since. I think that's probably the simplest way to describe it without all the little experiences in between mm -hmm. that what put me on this path that I'm on now. Yeah. Um, I'm, um, I'm amazed on how my life has changed and how I have changed. I'm not telling you I don't have work to do because my defects still show up, right? But there's one thing I wanted to touch on when you talked about the feelings and the behaviors and the need to continue to work on change sober. What I've learned is this. Can I quote or something? Yeah, of okay. course. I read in the 12 and 12 that it has been our character defects, my behaviors, representing instincts going astray. That's been my primary cause of drinking and my failure at life. That's the primary cause of my drinking and my failure at life. Again, I was spiritually sick before I ever started, right? And, and, and um, now we're talking about a characterological conflict. The primary reason we get loaded is feelings and emotions, right? Mm -hmm. Feelings that I cause for myself, but I don't know I cause them for myself because I can't see them. So characterological conflict is emotional discomfort, feelings of guilt, shame, and remorse. And it occurs when my behaviors are not in line with my value system. My creator gave me everything I needed to survive. My problem is I don't know how to use it because I never had good instructors or examples when I was young, right? And I'm still learning one day at a time, right? So when, when we talk about the defects that create me to drink, and there's more than one area where it talks about these defects that made problem drinkers of us in the first place, right? So my behavior can only change when my thinking changes, and the only way my thinking changes is somebody else has to teach me how to act 
and how to move forward. It's like learning how to walk and crawl all over again mm-hmm. from scratch, right? Give me, give me some examples of defects of character. Uh, lie, cheat, steal, gossip. Yeah. <laughs> Which overall causes a bunch of turmoil in our right. lives. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, a prey to misery and depression, you know. Um, some people claim they're depressed when they're really seeking sympathy. <laughs> you know, I'm not telling you that people aren't clinically depressed. Yeah, of course. Right? But self-pity was a was a norm for me for a long time. It was even a time when I never knew I was in self-pity had because it had become so normal. So for me was it was so hard for me to identify my feelings. You said it's sometimes cl- we claim we're in depression like I didn't know that I was experiencing depression half the time. Uh-huh. Or that I was just feeling lonely, like knowing, differentiating all these different feelings was so hard, but also new for me because I never had the space and even tried to like even identify when I'm anxious. Mm. Like now I really know when I'm anxious and what makes me anxious and how to cope with it. You're getting to know Laisha. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Ain't that nice? It is nice. See, you know, I'm not telling you anybody's bad or wrong. However, the messages we get about ourselves in our developmental stages of life plays a major role in how we perceive ourselves in the world, right? And there's a lot of families that live by this repression ethic. Don't talk about that. You should be over it. Uh, You still feel like that? Why would you feel that way? These give some horrible messages to us about our feelings, right? So our thing is, fuck feelings. I don't want nothing to do with it. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? But... If we don't learn how we feel, how can we introduce us to someone new, right? We live in this darkness of, who am I? I feel like that's also, exactly, that's also kind of ties in with the stigma surrounding mental health. A lot of people invalidate, I mean, a lot of parents, I feel like that was my experience, parents invalidating feelings. You know, the thing I think a lot of parents make a mistake, and some of y'all out there going to get upset, but that's your shit, not mine. I think a lot of the times the parents make mistakes is because the parents' responsibility is to be in tune with the child, to give the child what they need, not decide what they need, right? Um, when I'm working with someone in recovery, I have a general idea of what's going on. But when they say something, they're going to tell me what to address with them in that moment. So then I'll give them what they need. But they're teaching me what they need because I try to be in tune with everybody I work with. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, it, it's also important that the person I'm working with can feel that I care, that they matter. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, that's the big thing you do is kind of almost empowering us. Because it's about empowerment. Yeah. It's about independence of the sick spirit, right? And you can't get there if you don't feel some kind of encouragement that I'm okay, I'm good enough. I am not bad, I've done bad, you know, stuff like that, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? But with the disease comes so much stigma about, oh, you're a piece of shit, you smoke dope. Well, the fuck, I can't stop smoking dope. Understand what's, what I'm suffering from before you sit back and judge it, you know what I mean? But that, that doesn't happen a lot. So. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I am very grateful that, that I have passion for helping another human being with the disease and that I have the patience to stick in there with them, no matter how much they resist what I'm saying. You know, I'm real grateful that I have that. Because to me, it's a privilege. And it's such an elation in my heart when I see somebody go, 
and just let it out. You know what I mean? Because they finally feel safe enough to allow themselves to be themselves, which they've always deserved. So, yeah, fuck that. <laughs> Keeping somebody stuck. We can't control somebody's growth. We got to allow them to grow. Yeah, so. that's, a, that's another one. And I think a lot of people f fall back and do go back out and relapse. So what's your kind of... Well, I think it could be many variables related to that. But the main thing is, I think people unconsciously underestimate the power of the disease. Therefore, they don't put the effort necessary into their recovery to stay sober. They say the only thing that has to change is absolutely everything. The easiest part about recovery is getting sober. The challenge is the requirements to stay sober, right? And I don't think a lot of people accept the severity of their illness and the need to change so many things. And it's not easy, because when I got sober, my thought was, I gotta go tell all my friends I can't hang out with them no more. But I didn't have to do any of that. It just happened because I got involved in the process of recovery and the people that are in the process of recovery. Mm -hmm. I stayed close. I was in the middle of the herd, not on the outskirts. And a lot of people, when we say these things to them, they still have a piece of their mind where oh, I may not need to do that, right? And they may not even think that in the moment, but when they go home, they go do what they've always done because they don't have a plan. And then some people with a plan don't stick to the plan because they're not accepting the severity. But I think even accepting the severity is a process, right? Um, there is some people who come in and stay, mm -hmm. but there is a lot of people where there is a um, recidivism rate of returns because they don't accept the severity of the disease. So mm -hmm. I think pretty much that's common. So when anybody relapses and come back, I just put my arms out and say, welcome home. Mm -hmm. Stop beating yourself up. Maybe you can learn something from that experience that'll help you with this new experience. Because if you made it back, it ain't no mistake. Mm -hmm. Still trying to empower them. And then I feel like we forgot to hit on the physical allergy that you mentioned. Well, I still have a physical allergy after 24 years of sobriety. If I take a hit of crack right now, and it's in everything most go sale, especially your shit, without a doubt. <laughs> everything most go yeah, sale. Yeah, without a doubt, I believe that'll happen today, right? But the allergy will not happen or not kick off unless I put one in me. So I often say my mind gets me started and my body won't let me stop, right? But as long as I stay spiritually fit, I have no fear that the obsession will return. Mm -hmm. That's why I get a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. So that means I gotta do something for my spirit daily. I gotta make deposits daily. Mm -hmm. But now it's kind of much a way of life for me. I'm not telling you I do this thing perfectly as it's outlined, but I walk closer to the way I talk today than I ever have. And it's a direct result of the 12-step process and the people in it. It's a we thing, not a me thing. I still got a sponsor that I talk to pretty regularly. I got a grand sponsor that we meet a couple times a month. You've come and hung out with us. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty active in being of service. I still facilitate three big workshops a week. Mm -hmm. yeah, I go to meetings. I sponsor people. I do the things that's required, but I don't do them today grudgingly. I do them today because it's what I love to do. And if you told me I'd love this 24 years ago, I told you you're out of your fucking mind. But I didn't know that I didn't know. I was sharing with somebody in group the other day that 
I got what I need today. But if you'd have told, asked me 24 years ago what I needed, I didn't know what I needed, but I acted like I knew what I needed because I was delusional and thought I needed this. So the bottom line is we want what we need, but since we don't know what we need, we don't know what we want. Very and true. that's not easy to hear for a lot of people. I didn't know what I needed or wanted. Uh -huh. I think what I knew, actually, the one thing I knew I wanted was to get high. <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah. And did you want to get high or could you, uh, or was yeah. your mind programmed to get high? It was programmed to. It was a part of my daily routine, my right. habit, you know what I mean? And there were times, I think one of the things that convinced me I was an alcoholic was I got high when I didn't even want to sometimes. And that was the day I got my third DUI. I didn't. I was like, oh, I kind of don't want to take this, but I feel like I have to. <laughs> and then, boom! I woke up in jail that day. Yeah. Yeah. That's questions I ask people in treatment a lot, you know. And then the other thing I try to do is this: I say, you say you want to get high, right? Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about some of the consequences that happen when you get high, which you can't separate from getting high. So they start saying, I go to jail. I get homeless. I, I'm a hoe. Uh, uh, I, I neglect my kids, I lose my job, I spend my money. I said, okay, that's enough. So when you say you want to get high, you're saying you want to experience all these things. Then they go, oh, I never thought about it like that. No shit. My disease won't let me think outside of that. You know what I mean? And that's what's so dangerous about this disease. Mm -hmm. It blinds you from seeing the truth. Yeah. Yeah, and then also in when I was in early recovery, I realized how fucking delusional I was, and that's kind of what you start, said in the beginning of this was we're so self-deceived and delusional. Yeah, I was my whole life the past like four years was a delusion and a lie, and just believing that I was having fun when I really wasn't, mm -hmm. and that I was okay with hurting people kind of rationalizing all those things that people would tell me I was doing because I didn't remember I was blacked out. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's <laughs> we, we develop these coping skills that stop working for us. And uh, they appear to work for us when we're growing up, but they're working against us because they're mind fucking us that they work. And then when we become adults, those coping skills begin to backfire on us. Like, nah, I don't need to talk about feelings. My mama don't want to hear it anyway, right? So now we get in a relationship and we want some intimate connection, but we're incapable of it because now we're terrified of our vulnerability, right? Mm -hmm. So we run from feelings, chasing feelings. And in the process, the behavior we display creates more feelings to run from. So we need something different. I tell people all the time, if you want something different, you got to do something different. And if you knew what to do, you wouldn't be here. So are you willing to accept some direction? Yeah, you know that's a huge thing is accepting the direction. You know, a lot of times people come to recovery and they want to figure out how. You've been trying to figure it out all your life and it hasn't worked yet. Mm -hmm. Give that shit up. But it's so habitual to try to figure out. A life geared towards self-centeredness cannot be said in reverse all at once. We are rebellion dogs in the beginning. Remember how rebellious you were? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's... Um, it, but it's important for me as a facilitator or a sponsor to understand where that person is, right? And meet them where they are and walk with them as long as it takes for them to get to where they need to be. Because they have to have the experience they have to have to get to where they need to be. It ain't determined on when I think they should have it. It's when they have it. You know what I mean? And some people have a problem with allowing a person to have their experience.
Well, go get drunk. Is that really what they want to do? Or do they not understand their disease? And I don't want it to sound like I'm coming across like I know all about it and I know everything because I don't. I, I've just witnessed and experienced some things since I've been around. And I learned from the people I work with how to work with them. I don't go in there with this oh, fixed idea, oh, I got this. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I, I, I go in there with the idea of let me see who I'm working with and let them teach me today what I need to do to help them. Then I get busy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have 20 plus years of experience. Mm. So I would somewhat trust your guidance and direction. You didn't trust me at first. No, no. Uh, what changed? Oh, now I'm interviewing I you. I, <laughs> I actually always appreciate when people ask me questions. Um, but I think what changed, I don't know, was just watching you and seeing the way you would interact with people. And it was just out of pure care and compassion and you were empathizing with people. I think that was the part. And then also you were just the things that were coming out of your mouth I was resonating with and they made sense a little bit. And I was, I don't know, op more open and willing than I was when I first met you. Yeah. It took a few weeks. Yeah. Charles is a life coach and a facilitator. Mm. So you kind of guide people through the, their kind of either early recovery and certain parts of their life, certain things they're struggling with. Mm. I believe you use the, the causal theory just as a way of approach somewhat. Yeah, well... I, I think the, the safest way to say what I do is I use everything I've ever learned about anything that can assist another person that's in front of me. And um, a few years ago, I got involved in some therapy, and they taught me a theory that a doctor created or developed. And I was even uh, certified as a life coach for them. And I had began working in a private office. I used to teach a parenting class. I provide individual breath work and healing. Well, accelerated meditation is what breath work is. And I, I facilitate something called an RSW, which is a relationship skills workshop. So I teach people how to represent themselves where they're understood. And um, there's many things involved with, with that because most people have conversations that are very accusatory, judgmental, blaming, right? And anytime you're in a relationship, if you blame, judge, should, or give unsolicited advice, those things are kind of hazardous in a relationship. But a lot of people didn't know them. So people come to me, and uh, I, matter of fact, I just recently uh, created a website. And one of the couples that did the video, a video talked about how they were in, they were married for over 20 years, and they had been to therapists and this and that, and nothing helped. But when I came into their lives, I just kind of taught them how to take ownership of what they're feeling, understand is it happening now or is it a feeling that's been repressed and it's triggered, right? And, and, and how to represent it. In other words, you make me feel is not true. I feel when you is the accurate way, right? So it's about understanding my pathology and how it stands in my way of a healthy, intimate relationship with another human being. Right. But a lot of people don't even know this. This is an issue because they've never been taught it or they are not willing to look or the ego won't let them say, OK, I don't know. I need help. You know what I mean? So they talk about how um, I came into their lives and they thought this was the problem, but they discovered their problems were coming from individuals, them in their individual selves and lack of awareness of knowing themselves 
or why they were feeling what they feel, when they feel what they feel. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's intense. I'm real grateful to the lady who taught me all I know is Dr. Faye. I don't know what's all right to say her name, but I just did. Kind of to transfer the conversation a little bit more to mental health. How do you view it? How do you view mental health and mental health? I think illness? mental health is definitely a serious issue, but I'm not really educated in mental health, so I don't talk much about mm-hmm. unless I know about it, right? Mm-hmm. And when I personally refer to mental health, I'm referring to how you perceive yourself in the world because that's also mental, correct? But when I think you're talking about mental health, you're talking about things like bipolar, schizophrenia, stuff like that, correct? When I say mental health, it's very it's very broad okay. and wide. Okay, so. Because I think addiction in itself is a mental illness. Okay, I, I don't disagree because there's a mental component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, when I think of mental health, I'm talking about how we perceive ourselves in the world, right? Um, how do you think uh, about something you don't agree with? Uh, how do you resolve issues? Uh, how do you process your feelings? I think all of that's mental health. For right? sure. And um, one of the things that I, I, I tell people is when I talk about a personality disorder, I'm talking about coping skills, period. Right? And a, a personality disorder is a mental health issue it, to me. It's, it's how I perceive me in the world, in short. Mm-hmm. When I'm mentally healthy, I'm stable emotionally. When I'm stable emotionally, my serenity is in a better place. When my serenity is in a better place, I make better choices. I treat people better. Mm-hmm. And when I treat people good, I'm treating me good. What would you say your mental health state is right now? I think I'm fairly healthy, but I got work to do. Like for me recently, I also feel like I can drive myself into a depression you absolutely can <laughs> what, what's your kind well, of well here's the that? thing um it, it's been said that anxiety comes from the future and depression from the past right so i i when people come to me with issues the first thing i ask them is what were you thinking prior to your feeling and you know a lot of people will say i don't know what i was thinking right yeah but if everything is born in a thought which creates a feeling, or urge, an action, and a reaction. I need to understand my mind, because that's the root of it, right? That's like the disease of chemical dependency. They say sinners in our mind, right? So I need to understand the mind and the power of it, and don't underestimate it. I can. I remember times I was thinking about uh, something in a TV show, right, and how a snake comes up. I can think about that long enough to almost feel it. That's the power of my mind. But sometimes when you're talking to people because they've never heard it or been told things to empower them to take more responsibility for themselves, they kind of apprehensive to believe in it, you know? So it's a a struggle in itself. So I just keep coming back at people sometimes with the same thing over and over again at different times. Because one time, they're going to hear it. Yeah, so you do with me. Right. Is that what I do with you? <laughs> and a lot of yeah, and with a lot of people that I've seen you work with. Um, you, you know, my thing is this: we're not going to see it the first time it's mentioned to us. But my job is to keep presenting it. Mm-hmm. When you see it, is when you see it. Mm-hmm. I, I just you know, I can't decide. Oh, I'm gonna give up because she ain't trying to hear it. You know, how am I really accepting you as you are? That's the thing is that I don't have the patience for. <laughs> 
You don't think this requires patience? It's like a different kind of patience. But it's patience. No, but it's different. But it's patience. Because look, uh, with I find it really hard for me sometimes to work with people like sponsoring, for example. Why? Because they're not sometimes like they say, yeah, I want to sponsor. I'll do the steps, but they're not very open and willing and receptive. Do you think they want to be? And also, I mean, yeah. And then also, it's also hard for me to work with people sometimes that are actually in treatment. Like I used to run a group and I fucking hated it. It was I dreaded this time every week because it felt like nobody was actually engaged in the conversation, like in what I was doing. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, I get that. Uh, I personally believe retention is important in a group, right? So I, I think I have a gift because nobody ever trained me to do what I do. Mm-hmm. So I think my higher power has gifted me with the ability to retain a person's attention and keep them engaged, right? And I will scan a room, and if a person's quiet, I'll say, hey, why are you talking so much? <laughs> What's mm-hmm. on your mind? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just to get them in, involved. And a lot of times when, we, when, we, when we're new, we don't think much of ourselves. For my first daughter, nobody else thinks much of us. So I'm doing things and let them know how much they're important and how much they're valued. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and so that's what I do. You know what I mean? So I, I don't I don't I don't I, I don't I, yeah, I, I think it's a gift because there's I never go to a group with a plan. I do go to a group with material. And from the material, questions come up and I could elaborate on many things that opens up another question area. It it just flows. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a gift. Because I, I don't know, I went to college, but there's some things I don't think you learn in college. For sure. Yeah. Um, you learn book sense, but where do you learn people skills? Exactly. Just dealing with people. Yeah. So when you go to a group, are you going to a group with any expectations? Of just people being engaged, that's it. Okay, like, that's an expectation, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so w- when we're talking, are you engaging with me? Yeah. Okay, so you're doing something to get me engaged. Yeah. Are you doing anything to get them engaged? Just something to ask yourself. You know. <laughs> you, you know, it's been said, what you put in is what you'll get out. For sure. You know, and I'm not in group for me. Are you in group for you? So there could be some things you might want to look at because I think you'd be a great facilitator because you care. And that's just an opinion. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And I also want to thank you for coming on the Fuck the Stigma podcast and taking time out of your day to come up here and have a chat with me. I, I think um, I owed you that. You've been trying to get me here for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, my schedule's tight. By the grace of God, I, I don't just exist no more. I have a life. So it, it's been tight. <laughs> it was in the cards for us today. Yeah. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, we're done. Yeah. We're done. <laughs> All right. I love you, Charles. I love you, too.